Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the History Room of AccessibleWorld.org and to A World View of History, hosted by Don Queen. The date is November 17, uh, 2010. And without further ado, we'll get into an interview with the author of our book, which is on Andrew Jackson. The book is. Okay. So we'll get into this right away. Now, a look at former President Andrew Jackson and his dealings with Native Americans. Author Robert Remini, who won the National Book Award for his three-volume biography on Andrew Jackson, discusses his latest work, Andrew Jackson and His Indian Wars. Mr. Remini reviews Jackson's battle victories in Louisiana and Florida and his implementation of the Indian Removal Act of 1930. Thank you very much. I never intended to write so many books on Andrew Jackson. This last book, I swear, is my last. (laughs) Andrew Jackson was once considered one of the great heroes in American history. And as a matter of fact, a lot of presidents still regard him as one of the most important. And historians as well, including me. And that his life needs to be known. But the one thing that has diminished him has been the removal uh, of the Indians and how it was done and the awful suffering that resulted from it. And I felt that I had to address the question in order to explain what happened and why it happened. But I think Americans have a kind of guilty conscience about the Indians. That they had, that this nation did this and did it in such a horrible way that they don't want to hear any attempt to explain the reasons for it because it might seem as though we're trying to defend it or justify it. And that is not what I wanted to do. I think Americans need to know more about their history and why they did these things so that they don't do them again. And and the horrible part is not only shouldn't we do it, but we have done it again and again. Removal. This book, then, is an attempt to really tell you in graphic detail at times just what happened and, 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 and why. And I think like all problems, the Indian problem begins at the very beginning when the Europeans arrived on this, on this continent. They invaded this continent. These settlers came here and settled. They took land. By what right? Conquest. They found a native population practically living in the Stone Age. The king of England, kings of England, felt that they could hand out millions of acres of land to get settlers to come. And they were turned over to the New England Company, to the Virginia Company, 
uh, to William Penn to be the proprietor of a colony called Pennsylvania to the uh, proprietors of the Carolinas all this land being handed out Indian land and sometimes the Indians welcomed them and sometimes they did not and so they were attacked and because we had superior weapons we could easily defeat them almost from the beginning the British were moving in and pushing these people out and drawing a line saying you're over there and we are here you respect our rights and we will expect yours and the Indians would say this is our land very well we'll buy it from and sometimes they they signed treaties sometimes they actually did buy it and when the Indians refused they just took it and if they objected they killed them and the killing begins right from the very beginning and add to that the diseases that they brought over that the Indians had no protection against such as uh, um, um, smallpox and the flu they started dying one tribe after another was annihilated and as more and more Europeans come over more and more land is needed and more the Indians are pushed back and along the frontier there is always fighting there is always savagery on both sides and into this milieu Andrew Jackson is born on the frontier of the Carolinas in the Waxhaw countries, as you know. And we have new documentation that, which I've presented, that shows that his mother had a fierce hatred for Indians, most probably because they killed one of her kinsmen. And she, uh, taught, if you will, her children two things. Beware, fear the Indians, and distrust them. And Jackson is brought up in a climate in which the removal of the Indians in order that white civilization can take root is imperative and the hatred there he will say later on the Indians know two things fear and avarice and fear leads to violence and avarice leads to bribery we can bribe them get out of our way and more and more Europeans are, uh, are coming and when the revolution, the American Revolution begins, and they're fighting these Americans for their independence, the British, of course, arm the Indians to attack the settlers. And the Spanish, who were down in Florida and in Louisiana until they gave Louisiana back to the, to the French, are fearful that these Americans keep pushing west 
and could possibly at some time seize their Mexican empire with all of its silver mines. Didn't take us long to seize part of it. The best part, California, Texas, I should mention specific places. And so they too seized, uh, 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 armed the, uh, uh, the Indians. So that Jackson learned that as, at a very early age that his country, if attacked by enemies, the first thing they will do is arm the Indians against us. And if the Indians stay there where they are, they are a danger to our security as a nation. National security will make people do incredible things. But he knew almost from the beginning that the situation couldn't continue. One, either they are removed or we're going to exterminate them. They have already exterminated a number of tribes. Today, there are no more Yamases, all gone and once was a powerful tribe in, the, in Carolina. The Mohegans, you've heard of the Mohegans, the last of the Mohegans, the Pequots, the Narragansetts, the Natchez Indians. Eventually, we would have killed them all because we wanted their land and we wanted them out of the way. And so a man like Thomas Jefferson suggested that maybe the thing to do would be to remove them. Unless, of course, they could become cultural white men. Unless, of course, they could adopt to our ways. Unless they could cease to be our enemies and became like us. The Indians had no desire to be anything else but what they were. And that was Indians. It would mean if they became cultural white men, they would have to give up their, their own laws, their own leaders, their own religion. And they wanted to keep their tribal identity. They were proud of it. They had their own language and their own government. Why should they replace that? And they're taking the land where our ancestors are buried. Jackson's entire family is wiped out in the American Revolution. He had that to thank the British for. And they also scarred him on his forehead and on his wrist and put him in a concentration camp where he contracted smallpox. But he survived. But you can see the kind of man that is shaped by these terrible experiences. And he's an orphan at the age of 13. And he has lived in fear. The Catawba Indians, when, when they, the Jacksons got to Carolina, were practically a, a, a degenerate a, a tribe. They were very weak. They were really no problem. But at any moment, the Cherokees might suddenly come down out of the mountains and attack them to steal their horses or to take land, uh, try to take land back. 
Americans had the, uh, the habit of selling goods to the Indians for which the Indians could not pay, and then taking the land as payment and saying, you took from us, you have to pay. Trade, of course, there was a lively trade uh, with legitimate goods that was always carried on. But horse stealing and uh, land stealing became a fact of life on the frontier. And the Indians always seemed to adopt the worst vices of white society, beginning with alcohol. then there was no telling what could happen and, and might happen. It's watching and seeing the savagery that did exist on the frontier that made uh, quite a difference in the lives of these people. And with the beginning of the Washington administration claiming that this country exists from the Atlantic to the Mississippi, from the 32nd parallel to the Canadian border, that this is our country and the Indians are living in it. Well, do they obey our laws or their own laws? What the Washington administration did was to try to sign treaties with the Indians to pacify them, to keep them from attacking, of recognizing their land and getting them to recognize our land. And what did they do with these treaties? Washington took them to the Senate of the United States and had them ratified as though these tribes were sovereign foreign nations, independent. Because that's what you do when you submit a treaty to the United States Senate when you're dealing with foreign independent nations. You don't make treaties with just anybody. Yet they had no intention of recognizing Indian independence. As John Marshall later said in the famous uh, uh, case of the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, they were not sovereign and independent. They were wards of the federal government and subject to them. Did the Washington administration enforce these treaties? How was it going to enforce them? It had no army. It had no uh, means. Nor did it have the will. And so squatters, same squatters that came from at the start, a century and a half ago, start invading Indian land and taking it and bringing their family and farming in violation of the treaty. And the Indians violated the treaties too. Treaties are signed and they mean nothing. So nobody pays any attention to them. And Jackson sees this and he understands it. And one of the first things he does when he becomes an important uh, politician is to say to the government, forget treaties. Just have Congress pass the legislation in which they say, this is what you must do.
You, they have as much right to deal with the Indians as they do in uh, establishing uh, uh, territories. And he then uh, became a very influential figure in the western uh, frontier area. Uh, he was elected to Congress, as you know, but more importantly for my purposes, he is elected Major General of the Tennessee Militia, the West Tennessee Militia, in 1802. And one of his jobs was to see that the treaties were respected. And he will spend 15 years trying to run off white uh, squatters and punishing the Indians who violate the treaty in, in, in their way. And he, will, it, he finds that it's an impossible task because he comes in with his army, he will seize the, the uh, squatter, bring him to court, take his property, and have the courts decide you know, what to do. Very often he would burn their, their, their homestead, burn the fields, and say, this is Indian territory, keep out. And once his army moved off, the squatters came right back. And then, of course, the Creek Indians finally attacked this nation. And then the United States finally went to war with Great Britain. We had suffered so many humiliations from seizing our ships, impressing our seamen, refusing to give up uh, forts on our territory as they had agreed to do in the peace treaty that ended the revolution, and arming the Indians. And Jackson, after defeating the Creeks, had to race to New Orleans, and you know what he did there. Andrew Jackson became a hero such as this country had never had. And then, he, of course, he goes on to seize Florida, which we wanted, and clearing out the possibility of the threat to our uh, uh, independence by a foreign power. And it means, as far as he was concerned, that the Indians in that area had to be removed as well. And he then becomes an Indian commissioner first to get the Indians to understand what the situation is. Because if you don't move, he said, the same thing will happen to you as happened to the Yamases and the, and the Delawares and the Mohawks and the, uh, one tribe after the other. The dead tribes, they knew what the result would be if the tribes stayed where they were. At least they thought they did. And it became his uh, objective to send them all to the West, not by just taking their land and an exchange. That was what the president, uh, president Jefferson started, and it was followed by uh, the succeeding presidents. In other words, the Indians in the East gave up the lands that they had in the East for an equal amount in the West. And the government would pay for their transport.
he suggested this to uh, President Monroe, and President Monroe said, it's a very radical idea. It's uh, a problem that we have that we don't know the answer to, but we know it can't go on indefinitely. Can the Palestinians and the Israelis go on killing one another with no solution? I hate to use such a parallel. Or the, the Northern Irish, Protestant killing a Catholic, vice versa. Where's the answer? And Jackson was saying, for the Indians, they have to be removed. Or exterminated. And I think you have to be out of your mind to want to exterminate anybody. They'd have to be Hitler. And Jackson is not Hitler. In the Creek War, when a family was, ki was killed at one of these battles, the, uh, uh, some relatives brought this infant to Jackson and said, you have killed his parents, now kill him. And Jackson said, no, I'll take that child myself, Lincoya. And he brought him here to the hermitage and raised him as his son. Now, don't tell me he hates Indians. Someone who would do something like that. He planned to send him to West Point, which he thought was the best school in the country. And the poor boy died at the age of 17, possibly of tuberculosis. Extermination, that's no answer. Uh, protecting them where they are against the squatters. Jackson had 15 years to know it can't work. It doesn't work. Well, how about the assimilation? Whites didn't want it. Assimilate with a lower race? You know, they're all racists. They all think they are superior because they don't know what racism means, of course. And they were trying to lift the Indians, that which Jefferson said, lift them uh, 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 up to a higher civilization. It is that sort of contempt they had. The Indians were called children by the president, and they called him the great father. And you can see a picture of Jackson as the great father holding his Indian children uh, in the display cases uh, outside. And he knew then when the uh, uh, politicians began talking to him about uh, uh, running for president that if he was elected, the first thing he would do is get passage of the Indian Removal Act. A legislation for the removal of the Indians. And without going into uh, a great deal of detail, he was elected, and the first important piece of legislation to come out of his, of his administration was the Indian Removal Act of 1830. 
And uh, they began the process of removal. Now, how it was done is the great tragedy of this experience. These people wanted their land and they couldn't get it fast enough. And they came into their, they, these troops, these militiamen, would come into uh, the homes of these Indians, round them up, put them in a concentration camp, steal whatever they had of value in the homes. They would even open graves to see if there might be silver or gold trinkets that they could take. It was barbaric. And these are white people, settlers, militiamen, lawyers, contractors, jobbers of one kind or another. Anybody that had local police power had these poor Indians in their power. And they packed them into railroad cars, would remind you of the Holocaust, and shipped them west of the Mississippi, where they were told they would never be bothered again. They would hold that land in perpetuity. And they died by the thousands. The trail of tears you have all heard about. Jackson was not the president of the United States when that happened. It was President Van Buren. Not that I'm excusing him. I mean, he initiated the legislation that brought this about. The Cherokees sued in the Supreme Court, expecting the Supreme Court to uphold their right to run their own country, their own uh, affairs. And, of course, Marshall turned them down. They were subjects. Jackson is supposed to have said, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. He never said anything of the sort. He didn't have anything to enforce. Why should he say he wasn't going to enforce when nobody's asking him to do anything? The Supreme Court called upon the Superior Court of Georgia to reverse itself. And it then, it then adjourned for a whole year. Not until Georgia defied the court and the court had issued a writ of habeas corpus or mandamus then Jackson might be expected to, to do something. Instead, what he did was work very carefully behind the scenes to get the Cherokees to realize there is no future if you want to stay alive unless you, unless you want to remain here and become like us. If you want to be Cherokees, go west. And so they were sent. Jackson, in his uh, uh, eight years as president of the United States, added 100 million acres of land in the east. And valuable land it is, including land in Tennessee. At a cost of $68 million and giving the Indians about 32 million acres of land in the west. When they were removed, the Indians were given in each treaty a rifle, a blanket, a kettle, or a, or a beaver trap. There weren't many beavers left uh, in, in the West. Um, 
approximately 45,000 Indians were removed and only about at the end of his administration only about 9,000 remained from 18 from 1789 the beginning of this government under the Constitution until about 1838 something like uh, 81,000 Indians had been removed. And do you know today in Oklahoma the Cherokees have a tribal identity, they have a living language, they have at least three governmental bodies, Cherokee Nation East, Cherokee Nation West, and the original Cherokee community of Oklahoma, one of the earliest of the group to go. And a very distinguished Indian historian, Mary Young, said, when you think about these, what the, the, the Cherokees are alive today and have their own government, have their own culture, that's more than you can say for the Yamasee. And I would add, that's more than you can say for the Mohegans, the Narragansetts, the Pequots, the Natchez, and all the other, quote, dead tribes. So if truth be told, Andrew Jackson saved the five civilized tribes of Creeks, Cherokees, Choctaws, Seminoles from extinction. I really think that if they had stayed in the East, they would be gone. The way it was done is barbaric. You can see when national security or economic need or both grip a people, they can do horrible things. And white people have a lot to answer for in the way they have treated Native Americans, African Americans, Japanese Americans. This is a lesson in history that it should never happen again. But the signs, when they appear, have got to be resisted. We do have a lot of Native Americans today thanks to Andrew Jackson. Thank you very much. Um, I was just wondering, uh, uh, the author says that he's not here to excuse or exonerate Jackson for what he did, but to explain why he did what he did. How well do you think he did it? Anybody want to react to that question? Did he exonerate Jackson in your mind? Or how well did he do it? I don't think there really is an answer, as he said. You know, he was damned if he did, and he was doomed if he didn't. Um, so, I, you know, they're really, I think it'll, I, I, I just don't think um, there is an answer, real, a real answer. Uh, because, uh, you know, he, he really kind of had his hands tied uh, 
because so many of the settlers just wanted to get rid of these what they called savages or barbarians or whatever they wanted to call them because they thought they were so superior. You know, the reason, of course, the, the real horrible story, the Trail of Tears happened during Van Buren, what it was that the Cherokees who held out to the end, the others were transported, had a hard time, had a bad winter, but the existence of those three Cherokee tribal governments, is that worth the thousands of Indians that died? Can you speak into your microphone? It sounds like you're a million miles away from it. Don, I think what he's trying to show us, I don't know the, how popular this man would be with historians on Jackson, although he's a, an eminent historian. We were racist in those days. Absolutely declared the Indians' children, uh, you know, that they were uh, subhuman, and we killed them, uh, and they killed us in defense. There was killing on both sides. It, it is said that um, the first Thanksgiving, the, the pilgrims fell on their knees in prayer, and then they fell upon the Indians. You know, it wasn't always, you know, we love Squanto, and he loves us. But with all of that, Jackson still maybe have been ahead of himself by saying they must be removed or they will be exterminated. Um, yeah, Don, if you could speak up a little, I can hardly hear you either. I, I actually didn't get to this book, unfortunately. And I'd be curious to see if those of you that read the book, if, if you had a preconceived notion of Jackson and if the book changed your mind or if it confirmed what you already thought. I really had not much of a conceived notion about Andrew Jackson. Um, I may have a bias because I, I live in Florida, in the capital city, and that's what intrigued me about the book so much is uh, a lot of our street names are Monroe Street, Adams Street, Call Street, uh, who was a Call was a territorial governor of Florida. I live uh, in the county next to us is Gadsden County. Um, so... Uh, but I, I, the thing that intrigued me the most about close to the end of the book, he gave about the author gave about four options for the Indians, and the first option was genocide, and then it kind of teetered off from there, and I thought that was uh, most most intriguing, uh, and I'm still struggling. Uh, when they came up with the uh, several times the author uses the word racist and that Jackson was a racist and I that's to me is a very volatile word uh, still and uh, I'm kind of struggling with that. Oh, you're a better man than I. I'm not struggling with it. Uh, at their time, you know, you can we always hear well at the time they weren't racist, but they really believed the white man was superior in my in my opinion. And of course, that's how you define racism, I guess. But, uh, you know, in California, a Chinaman was not considered a witness in court. So if you were robbed and uh, your witness was a Chinaman, you had no witness until 1854, 55, when they changed it. And uh, so by his standard today, um, they, I think Jackson was definitely a racist. And I thought, uh, is it fair to say, I, I was amazed on the um, Supreme Court deal because I really believe in my studies, that he said if, if Tawney, he was mad at Tawney, 
And he said, if he wants to do it, let him lead the army, because I'm not going to enforce it. I won't do anything to help uh, the Cherokee there. But I gather this man says, no, he never said that. Marshall, too, which is kind of interesting. Tawny must have, I guess he said somewhere or read in the book or in his talk that uh, Jack, uh, Marshall was the longest, uh, served the longest term of any justice in history. So, uh, but Tawny seems to have been there a long time, too. Yeah, Marshall served 34 years as a justice. And then Tawny, what was he, Secretary of the Treasury? And got it, got appointed uh, Chief Justice. And he dragged, he wasn't, a, he was with the Dred Scott decision, all kinds of things. So, anyway, but that's okay. It is a volatile word, uh, Lynn. I think you're right there. But I, I just think we call it what it is. Um, yeah, my, my opinion changed about Andrew Jackson. Um, I actually had kind of liked him because when he left office, there was a balance of zero. Uh, you know, I mean, a, a deficit of zero in the um, U.S. budget. He had, um, Bob, you can help me with this. He had, was it he created or, or eliminated? I, I can never can remember the spoils system. Um, he kind of straightened the U.S. government up. And then I read this book and discover that this guy was just, in my mind, and it's a very small mind, just, you know, a really savage guy, the way he went after these, you know, the way I, I perceived the way he went after these Indians. And, um, I don't know. I'm glad we got to hear the author talk about it because it, it kind of, uh, clarified points, uh, in the book. Well, um, certainly I've liked Jackson. He's one of my favorite presidents. I'm not saying I dislike him here because I, I always believed, and I guess the author is trying to say, no, he loved the Indians. Look, at he took that kid and raised him. I didn't know that. I'm sorry I didn't. Uh, but Jackson, when he left office, was responsible because of his actions for the Great Depression that hit Martin Van Buren. As much as I like Jackson, he, he went after the Bank of the United States, Nicholas Biddle, destroyed it. He put all the money in little state banks, which went broke. What was the species circular about gold and silver and such? I don't remember. I should, but I can't call it up right now. But he did a lot of things uh, favoring the West and giving Eastern money to the Western banks, and they went broke. And he, uh, But he uh, is not blamed for the Depression. Uh, Martin Van Buren is. But uh, but that didn't mean I didn't like him. I like Jacksonian democracy, the belief that the common man could take part in government. Uh, people wrecked the White House in his uh, inaugural. You know, they jumped on the cushions and the Western man with their muddy boots. But he believed in Jacksonian democracy where, where Jefferson, who I also loved, believed the educated man could run the country, but not, not the average man. And Jackson took it another step and really modernized the country created the Democratic Party, and then a few years later, the Republican Party is created. Well, I think uh, my, what I had heard, of course, that Jackson was kind of a madman, that he was possibly suffering from too much lead in his system, but, uh, you know, there was none of that. He did fight, uh, fight a couple of duels, but uh, I'd also he hung these two English agents or protégés that they almost hung him for, I guess, while he was serving. But he was the most popular general at the time. And then he, uh, there was one story that he uh, shot a bunch of guys for retreating, but he this didn't come out. So, and this guy knows 
Jackson. He written a, he's written a lot of books on Jackson. Unfortunately, none of them none are on the NLS. You know, uh, one of the things that intrigued me was uh, for a while there he was a or, or maybe most of his life uh, Andrew Jackson was sort of like a loose cannon. Because you know, here he is gallivanting around in Florida, you know, trying to get the British out and trying to get the Spanish out and trying to get the the uh, Indians out also. And it was just like, you know, and he never went, you know, he was like a force under him unto himself, and he never got went up the ranks, so to speak, and to, to say, hey, uh, is this all, what y'all want me to do? <laughs> no, he did not do that. And, uh, you know, the, the old age-old theory is that many of these guys were landowners. They wanted land, and Jackson wanted land, too. Uh, go back to Washington and Jefferson. Those guys wanted to protect the land that they owned and uh, because that was wealth. And um, so he, yeah, he was a loose cannon. I mean, he fought duels over Rachel. Uh, he, he almost fought a duel with, um, what is his name, Sever, the governor? Um, I remember that when I read that far. But Don, what happened after when he met he met with the Indians? He held a convention with the Indians. That shows you how far back I am, though. Please forgive me. Nine years after Jefferson supposedly said we got to remove the Indians, and of course you had Indians saying yes, he said it, and other guys saying no. I gather that even though that they did send boats, correct? They, they, the Jackson bullies the convention. And says, you guys better sign this or we're going to annihilate you practically. And they agreed and they sent longboats. It just didn't happen though, the removal, correct? That's what I have to, I have to keep reading this book. Uh, it, that was way back in like 1812, 1814 maybe. Uh, is that my correct there? I, I kind of, he did, have, they had several, several conventions after the, uh, Creek War, the Creek War and they did give away a lot of land. The Indians did. And they kept doing that, and then by the time of 1932, I mean 1832, he after the Removal Act, he went back to meet with the the five tribes, and most of them they refused to meet with him because they kind of knew what was going to happen, and most of them buckled under except the Cherokees and the, I think the Chickasaw, I guess is the name, and there's one line in the. Uh, book that gets kind of criticized in some of the reviews and it says Jackson in his last hearing after they've signed and agreed to relocate they finally caved in and agreed to the chiefs agreed to relocate to the across the Mississippi and it says Jackson was moved uh, uh, saying goodbye to uh, to those uh, pitiful uh, I'm sorry about my braille. Pitiful uh, uh, pers- uh, people, and uh, but they loved him. They really did, and that that was the part people said they were very moved too. But they most of those guys got shot by other Indians for giving in, and they did move across the Mississippi. But it was a very very sad scene. I, I do. I like the uh, concept that the five tribes have have existed, but they suffered a lot in the West. The West is far from a paradise, and uh, there was Indian wars and all kinds of things that went on. But I don't know if if we want to put the spin to it and just look at what he did. He said, I'm going to remove you because you're going to be killed. 
That, those are your choices. And I, Lynn, I'll read the five options at the end. My God, genocide would have been awful. And um, but I'm going to remove you, and uh, or you're going to die. And uh, the removal was painful, but he wasn't president. And how do you control that? How how can you know they? Things happen now where the government makes a decision and then it gets really crazy um, with various agents and so forth. The Japanese, they took all their all their stuff too, you know, and just moved them on to Manzanar and some of these concentration camps. And so uh, we could blame Jackson, but Van Buren was the president by then most of the situation. But he, as the author fairly said, but he introduced the legislation. Yeah, like, like all through the whole book it was – you know the, the president as the father figure, and the Indians were always the children, and uh, I just you know that kind of got pounded into me and pounded into me. Uh, I don't want to stray too far, but there was one section of the book right after maybe like the first treaty with the Indians, and Jackson they were paying off the people I guess the white guys for. Um, the services they had provided. Uh, and I could not help but notice that they, they all ended in 6666. And I could not help but uh, associate that with what else but the uh, revelations and the, the mark of the beast, 6666. Wow, that's interesting, yeah. I've seen that too, and I've thought the same thing. Not again, not to stray too far, but my my jaws serial number is six six six, and I always thought that might be problematic. I, I must have missed something. What was the six six six? Was that in the book, or was this somewhere else? I'm sorry. okay. The the he in the book, the author talks about the payment of the people that were or the people that were being paid, like uh, the traders or maybe the interpreters, and the amount of the money that they were receiving. And they, they, and they had $6,660.60. Then another guy got paid $666.66. And the next guy got paid $66.66. And they were all like 6666. And I could not help but associate with those numbers with the mark of the beast. He didn't. The author didn't say, didn't associate that with at all. But that, that this is my interpretation. Sounds like that slipped by the author too, because that that those were uh, very religious times, especially in the 1830s. So uh, I'm sure that the people that that must have had some kind of meaning to it. Do you think he really was out there? He, he didn't ha- hate the Indians like he did, in the, at least in the beginning. Uh, but I, I don't think he looked at them like children. But, uh, you know, uh, if you talk to uh, in the eastern, like the Genghis Khan or the Ottoman Empire, they talked to the sultans and the kings there like they didn't call them father, but they were just as... Uh, 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 Beholding to the emperor, you know they were they were they were low, they were dirt beneath his feet, and this, these guys were ch- children to their father. Yeah, that's an interesting connection. Uh, you know, the 
in the Lone Ranger series, they called him the Great White Father. So he he got a he got a color there later in the uh, when it was written. <laughs> but um, I guess ever since uh, the 9/11 tragedy, I've been struggling with um, I guess who's the blessed and who's the blame. Like whose fault is it? And uh, one of my uh, favorite subjects, well, my favorite subject is slavery. And I was able to listen to uh, something locally here in Tallahassee, um, a, a lecture uh, that I was fortunate enough to go to. And he talked about slavery uh, as it pertained to, uh, to, to the South and to, to well, our local area. And, uh, and, and he was, the, the lecturer was saying, you know, it's, maybe that's not important that we find, you know, fault. Because I, I think, you know, I, and fault, fault in any particular thing, like, like with Andrew Jackson, like, like it's all his fault. Um, cause what I learned about this book was it's, it didn't start with <laughs> Andrew Jackson, uh, he contributed to it, for, sort of, but uh, you know, it started maybe way back as within with George Washington, or and probably goes back further when they first the Pilgrims stepped off the the, the Mayflower, uh, maybe that far back. Um, but it's uh, it's it's just, uh, it's just another another thought of mine. Uh, we're getting towards seven, but I or my time, but I. What a little bit of trivia here. You remember William Weatherford, Chief uh, Redstick, or Chief William Weatherford, at the Fort Mims Massacre. He was the great-grandfather of the author to our book on Genghis Khan, he bra- Jack Weatherford. He bragged about it. And I'd never heard of Chief Weatherford before. But Chief Weatherford, I guess, was one-eighth Indian, but was a chief, big chief then. And he was pardoned by, uh, I mean, Jackson let him go, and he ended up as a planter in Alabama and died in 1824. But that was just a little bit of a trivia. And about assimilation, they recently a governor of, uh, I think it was either South Carolina or Georgia, one of the governors, she, it's a, not only a lady governor, but she is part Indian. So some of the Indians did survive in the East. I think she just got elected, wasn't it? And a Indian and uh, and a woman, first one in South Carolina or somewhere. Yeah. I thought she was Indian, as in from India. She was Native American Indian. Uh, she is in in fact uh, an, from India or or related to to India. Not she's not an an American native. Oh, thank you for then for straightening me out there. Yeah, I thought okay, you know, but from India. Okay, that's fine. Should have checked that one out. Any other comments on on the book? Did you like it or not like it or have any criticisms on it? What I've read, I like it very much. Lou Harbinow kind of, I have to get used to his rhythm. He's an age-old narrator, you know, and a good one. But uh, I was hearing it today trying to catch up a little. And I said, hey, this is really good. Uh, But you have to take the time to concentrate, you know, on what's going on. But I think it's a great read. Um, I give it a thumbs up. 
I give it a thumbs up, except I have to say, as I said earlier, this is not a woman's book, and I got tired of all the violence, and so I really actually did not complete it, but I, I just got tired of it. I think if you read the last, it's not any more cheerful, but it kind of summarizes the very last chapter, but... Uh, uh, I almost didn't pick it because it, you knew it was going to be a bad ending. Well, with that criteria, you'd have to eliminate a lot of books in history anyway. Aren't very many happy ones, are there? We hear about our next book, Don. Yes. Uh, do you have that uh, recording, Bob? Uh, our next book, it's kind of a continuation of uh, last month's book on this, the Cold War. This one is uh, about the Russian people themselves, about a... Uh, the uh, origins of the true story of the uh, hunt for Red October. And uh, you have the recording, Bob, or shall I talk about it? No, I have it. I'll play it. First, let me tell you about some changes we are planning. Effective January of next year, we will be meeting on the first Tuesday of every month in the new history room. So we plan to skip December and our next meeting will be on January the 4th. Now, our book for January 4th will be Mutiny, the True Events that Inspired the Hunt for Red October by David Hagberg and Boris Gindin, G-I-N-D-I-N. This story provides a dramatic insight into the Lives of Everyday Russians, and is a good follow-up to last month's book, The Cold War, by John Lewis Gaddis. Here is part of a somewhat overproduced promo by the authors. My name is Boris Gindin, and I used to be a senior lieutenant on the ship Stargeboy, which was involved in a mutiny, and based on this event, me and David wrote this book. Hi, my name is David Hagberg. I'm the author of Mutiny, the true events that inspired the hunt for Red October, which is based on an incident that happened in the Baltic with a Russian anti-submarine warfare ship, the Strasovoy, and their political officer decided that he was going to mutiny and take the ship and announce to the world and the Russian public that the Brezhnev government was terrible and it was going to be like the Potemkin or whatever, going to start the new Russian revolution. Well, they did mutiny and arrested some of the officers, including Boris, who said, no, I don't want to go along with this mutiny. This is insane. Even to think about mutiny at that time was a death sentence. And they had him at gunpoint, and they locked him up. Again, the title of the book is Mutiny, the True Events that Inspired the Hunt for Red October by David Hagberg, H-A-G-B-E-R-G, read by Roy Avers, 10 hours and 4 minutes. That's D-B-7-0. Two, three, two. You can also get The Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy on cassette tape and Braille, but by very different numbers. So that is uh, the true events. It's a story of this political officer, uh, 
uh, Thomas, they didn't call him a com he was third in command, and he, he was a fanatic Marxist, and he didn't, he was upset by the corruption of the Leonid Brezhnev regime, and it was a sub-tracer, not a submarine, and all he was going to do was go out in the middle of the Baltic and, and radio a message to the Russian people and hope it would turn into like the uh, ship, there was a battleship, Potemkin, Potemkin in the Black Sea in the uh, 1905 uh, revolution that started the whole uh, Russian civil war. Okay, and I, and I want to say and make it very clear that uh, Don and I have been talking about this a lot, and it was his final decision, because he remembers my last message, what's in a name. But we're going to call this this group here a journey through history. I don't know if you're going to like it or not. The reason we are is that um, one of the history groups, which dealt with medieval history, has disbanded. The the uh, the uh, leader of that has got other things to do. She's going to be an editor of two or three magazines, and we're delighted for her. But uh, this gives us Don the whole scope of history. He can do historical fiction, nonfiction, on and on, uh, based on what you guys you know. And if you give him suggestions, but it gives him the whole run of it. So we thought a journey through history is broader. Um, so if you don't like it, we can well listen. Don's the Final de- decision maker on this one. This one, the history room. No, I did want to change the room. I'm I'm guilty there. That sounds like a great name, and it sounds like a really interesting book. Well, whatever you call it, I'm still going to keep showing up. Thank you, and and I know that we'll sneak in historical novels and things. You know, we hope you'll like them. We did. We we enjoyed a lot of the books that were read. Uh, yeah, as Sherry knows, and Don and myself were in it. And Lynn, you came in, I think. Um, and uh, But, you know, Don will be cognizant of that to broaden the mission. He can go anywhere now on this thing. So, anyway, uh, I want to personally wish you guys a very happy New Year since we'll see you January 4th on the first Tuesday uh, because we want to give a day when there's no competition that this is the place to come. So we're really delighted for Donnie's work. Don works very hard. His news wires are perfect. We don't have to do anything with him. And he does a lot of research. And I love the uh, interviews. I think that's excellent. I get a lot of nice letters about the interviews. Is the time going to stay the same? Sir, 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. 